This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District with your Extension Crop Report. Wheat is drying down now to its golden hues and wheat harvest is not far away. While all the money is in the wheat itself, all of it is being held up by a whole lot of straw. Straw, largely considered a byproduct, actually has a lot of uses, some of which is used widely, like mulch in the garden. Some uses are much less common, like insulation within walls. First, let's take a look at what wheat is made of. Wheat straw is around 40% cellulose, 40% hemicellulose, and 15% lignin. This lignin is what keeps the straw together and makes it harder to break down. Wood has more, usually over 25%, while hay has ideally less than 10%. Livestock can eat straw, but it is not great forage in its unmodified form. Wheat straw needs to be ammoniated by pumping in hydrous ammonia into sealed bales and leaving it for a few weeks. The ammonia will react with the moisture in the bale and begin to rip apart the structures of the straw, making it more digestible. The process makes the straw more palatable and it gives an ammonia protein boost for cattle. Ammoniation is not a difficult process, but it does take some time, material, and a way to regulate the anhydrous. In some drier and northern climates, where there are less trees and wood, wheat straw is sometimes used as a heating source. Dry straw has around 6 to 8,000 BTUs per pound when burned, which is around the same energy density as soft wood. Of course, straw is really fluffy, so there are these special burners to handle not only the little square bales, but also the big round ones. Most of these burners are used to heat water that is then used to heat the building or the barn. With a reasonable efficiency, it's possible to get 3 million BTUs out of a straw round bale, or around 32 gallons of propane. Wheat straw, along with nearly every other type of field stover, has been looked at for ethanol production. The process is largely the same, where enzymes are used to break down the cellulose into sugars that can be fermented. While the process is possible, it's expensive to ship and use volumes of such bulky material, and it's not as cost-effective as using grain for now. In building material, wheat straw has been used for thousands of years. Ancient civilizations used straw to bind clay bricks together, something that is still done today in some cultures. Like mentioned before, straw bales can also be used as wall insulation. A straw bale has an R value of over 35 and has a lot of sound insulation. Using straw bales in this way is somewhat common in the adobe houses and the drier climates of the southwest. In industry, wheat straw is used in a number of processes and has the potential to be used as a bioplastic or a paper substitute. This rather makes sense because straw is hard to break down and has a strong structure due to its high lignin content. However, wheat straw does have a lot of uses. Its main use for now and in the future will be right where it is in the field providing food for soil microbes and protecting the soil from erosion between crops. Plenty of research has been shown that removing too much straw or other field stover has a negative soil effect. If you have any questions about using straw, at least for an agricultural use, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Improving the genetics of a herd or a flock takes time. Herd performance evaluation is a tool to monitor improvement. The main traits to evaluate can be summed up in three points. Reproduction, 
is the female meeting the operation's goals? Growth rate. Are the offspring growing at an acceptable rate? And lastly, composition. Are the animals in the condition needed for providing a satisfactory end product? These traits can be tools to guide the operation's breeding program, selecting high-performing, high-quality replacement females, and calling animals with low-quality offspring. The key to comparing individual animals in a herd comes down to records. Marking birth dates and gender, identifying newborns with a tag or tattoo, and noting their dam is the first step. It's also handy to know when the dam was born and identity of the newborn sire. Fast forward to weaning time. To compare apples to apples, weaning weights are collected and adjusted to an industry standard. The cattle industry standard weaning age is 205 days. For lambs and goats, the standard is 90 days. This adjustment removes the weight advantage of older offspring in a group weaned at the same time. Dams also need to be weighed. Producers can then calculate the percentage of the dam's body weight that's been weaned. For example, a 1,000-pound cow that weans a 500-pound calf is more efficient than a 1,400-pound cow that weans a 600-pound calf. Usually, as dam size increases, efficiency decreases. There's also a negative relationship between efficiency and break-even profit. As efficiency goes down, the cost of producing each pound goes up. The efficiency percent calculation is very important. A producer would more likely keep a replacement female that weaned 50% of her body weight rather than 42%. Adjusted weaning weights can also be used to compare females for maternal qualities and sires for offspring growth. Average daily gain is calculated by subtracting the birth weight and actual weaning weight then dividing by the animal's age in days. Performance records are useful in evaluating the production level of a herd. The most easily used value is the adjusted weaning weight. Under field conditions, this is the primary indicator of herd performance. Other values that can receive consideration are conformation and hip height. Evaluation of herd performance records allows the producer to set goals for the herd and determine the direction of the herd's breeding program. Strategically select herd sires that will improve growth rates and systematically cull females that don't meet performance standards and keep females that do meet the standards. For more information, give me a call at the Labatt County Extension Office, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Strons, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is a David Strons, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties, with your K-State Research and Extension report. Almost all ponds will leak to some degree, especially newly built ponds. But how do you determine whether water loss from your pond is normal or a sign of something more severe? The following information is from the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks, and Tourism. We'll start off by discussing water evaporation in farm ponds. In Kansas, expect normal water evaporation from your farm pond. It can range from about 4 feet per year in the eastern part of the state to about 6 feet per year in the west. 
Most evaporation will occur during the summer, especially in hot, dry, windy periods. During this time, about half an inch of water can be lost to evaporation each day. Water loss greater than this usually indicates a leak in the pond. How to measure water leakage in a farm pond. Pond owners can determine leakage rates by measuring the drop in water level with a marked stick. It's recommended this be done during cold or very humid, calm weather. What causes water leaks in a farm pond? Leaks in farm ponds may be the result of permeable sand, gravel, or fractured rock layers that either exist throughout the basin naturally or were exposed by construction. Improper bonding of the embankment to an impermeable foundation soil can also lead to leakage. Some ponds are constructed in areas where all the soil in the basin is permeable, so the leak cannot be pinpointed. Deep ponds tend to leak more because of the increased water pressure on the porous areas. Repairing leaks in a farm pond. Techniques are available to seal leaky and potentially leaky areas in farm ponds. However, most sealing techniques are expensive and require considerable work. If a small gravel or rock area is causing leaks, a bulldozer can be used to remove some of the problem material. The area can then be covered with a layer of soil that has a high clay content of at least 10% clay from some part of the basin. The added soil should be at least one foot thick, but preferably two feet thick. This soil should be compacted as it is being deposited. A sheep foot roller is recommended for serious leak areas. Other products that can be used to repair leaks in a pond include betonite, polymers, and pond liners. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strance with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Horde Report. Trees, trees, trees. All of the calls coming in right now are about trees and how part or all of the canopy is dying off. While not guaranteed to be delayed drought stress from last year, there are a few telltale signs of drought dieback in trees. The most obvious sign is dieback at the top of the tree. Water has less distance to travel to the lower parts of the tree, so the closer branches are to the roots, the sooner they will get water they need first. This is why upper branches are dying off right now. The farther up the limited amount of water has to go, the more dieback you can expect. Drought stress doesn't always show in the season the tree is suffering, so it's important to give trees regular drinks during period of no rain. One way you can tell if something you think is dead is actually dead is the flex test. Flexing the outermost twigs of dead-looking branches will tell you if that part of the tree is still getting water. If it flexes with your bending, you know that the problem is only with the leaves and not the underlying wood. If it's brittle and snaps when you try to bend it, the wood is dead and will need to be pruned out. 
For some trees, you might see new growth right from the large limbs or trunk. While new growth might initially seem encouraging, this growth is instead the last gasp effort of the tree to survive by putting out as many leaves as possible to try and photosynthesize sugars. It's equivalent to the human body going into shock when it loses too much blood and is a sign that the tree is likely going to die. Once a tree runs out of leaf area to photosynthesize, it will use up all of its stored sugars and give up the ghost. The longer a dead tree or limb stays standing, the more likely it is to topple onto whatever is nearby. Safety first, you'd always rather regret removing a tree than not removing a tree. The way you water a tree is very important for overall tree health, especially in its early years. Keeping a hose at the base of the young tree will allow water to sink deep down into the soil profile where it won't evaporate in sunlight. Frequent but shallow waterings will ensure the tree has a shallow root system. After all, why would it grow its roots deeper if everything it needs is right at the surface? This is fine until drought hits and all of the water near the surface evaporates into the atmosphere. Making sure that your water makes it deep into the soil will be best for the tree long term. You will also need to water on warmer days during the winter if your plants are evergreen trees or shrubs. Drying winter winds will dry out plants if there is not enough moisture to replace the lost water. Hollies in particular are susceptible to distressing winter dehydration injury. Just be sure to check the weather before winter watering. If water is applied right before a cold snap, the roots can freeze, leading to total plant death. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.